Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 258th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Joseph Pitzel. Joe is the founder of Pitzel Financial, an independent RIA based in Minneapolis area that oversees nearly $270 million of assets for almost 270 client households. What's unique about Joe, though, is his unique next-generation career path into the advice business, which started out by working as an associate planner in a large advisory firm because he was scared to take in a sales role, and only after getting 10 years of experience decided that he was ready to be in charge of business development and finally decided to launch his own firm and start to build his own client base. In this episode, we talk about how Joe navigated his initial entry into financial planning, despite being an admitted bad student who struggled in the traditional classroom, the way Joe's involvement in the FPA and with the next-gen community built his network to the point that whenever he needed to switch firms, he never struggled to find the next job opportunity, and why Joe has found business development so much easier in his 30s than it was when he was in his 20s. We also talk about how Joe has structured and scaled his advisory firm as it's added more than $250 million of AUM in barely seven years including why the firm decided to outsource its portfolio management to a TAMP in order to focus more on their financial planning services, how the firm structures its lean team of just five people, of which four are leader associate advisors, to serve their 270 client households, and how Joe's firm has turned local Google searches into a key driver of new clients. And be certain to listen to the end, where Joe shares how he's navigated some of the biggest challenges in his career, including finding himself out of a job at the same time he just started a family and bought a house how Joe clears his mind when he needs to regain clarity in his business, and why forming a study group with five other advisors at a similar age in the career stage was so foundational to Joe's career success and getting the support he needed at key turning points along the way. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Joe Pitzel. Welcome, Joe Pitzel, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today, and what I think is is an interesting example that you've lived of. I, I just started calling it the like the the alternative journey or the the new journey of how you become an advisor. Because if if you dial the clock back 20 years ago or so, almost everybody who became a financial advisor, and in particular those of us who went in the world of like more comprehensive financial planning and and getting CFP certification and going deeper with clients. Like it was a pretty standard journey. You came into a life insurance or brokerage firm, you sold stuff. If you sold enough stuff, you were allowed to go get your CFP marks. And if you sold a lot of stuff, you might be allowed to start doing like advisory accounts or fee-based work or charging for a plan. And if that went well enough, maybe at some point you decided to go and hang your own shingle. But there was sort of this evolution that when you start in the business, you started out by selling stuff. And if you did that well enough, you could learn how to actually give advice later. Right. And I feel like we, we've, we've started to change that over the past 20 years. And, and you were, I think, one of the early people to come to that shift where you started in the business just under 20 years ago. You came in from a very different perspective of straight out of college into a a financial planning oriented advisory firm that was not selling products where you got your CFP marks in like the first year that you were there and built a career in a support role, learning financial planning as a profession. And then years later, 
said, hey, maybe I'm going to go hang my shingle and get clients and do this myself. And and just like the the 180 degree polar opposite of, I feel like how we all learned the 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 business or how we brought people into the business decades ago, it used to be you sold stuff until you could learn to do advice. And you came to this world of pioneering, no, I'm going to actually learn to do the advice stuff first, and then I'm going to go build a business and get clients and deliver that for them. And and so I'm 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 just I'm excited to talk about what that what that journey looks like for maybe for all those people who are still out there because it still happens today. A lot of the firms that hire are hiring for you know sales jobs first and foremost, and maybe later you'll get to learn to be a financial planner. What does it look like when you come in to be a financial planner and you you actually get a financial planning job out of the gate? <laughs> And then grow through that journey to eventually say, okay, now I'll actually want to run my own firm and do this myself. Yeah, exactly. And for what it's worth, you know, I mean, to that point, you know, we'll we'll talk a fair amount about just kind of luck and lucky breaks and there's unlucky stuff along the way too. But, you know, I would say that that's kind of one of the lucky breaks is just, just having this opportunity because if I would have gone into that sales side from the beginning, I don't think I'd be here. And it, it's one of the things that, that, I guess both fascinates me and, and and frankly really saddens me that I I do worry that we lose a lot of fantastic financial advisor a lot of people who would have been fantastic financial advisors in the long run because they don't survive the first twelve or twenty four months of what is still often very sales centric jobs and certainly were historically and they never get the opportunity to discover and show that they're wonderful financial advisors because they couldn't sell enough stocks, mutual funds, life insurance, or something similar in their first 12 and 24 months to ever get to the point of actually being an advice provider and showing what what good work they can do as an advice provider. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. And even taking it a step further, you know, a lot of the people that start in that type of an environment, that's what they think this industry is. So you're not only losing talent from an advisory standpoint, but you know, you're losing potential clients as well. Yeah. Yeah. I I do think a lot of the the black marks we've got in our profession at large and trying to interact with consumers starts with, well, you know, look, at the end of the day, the average consumer's experience with a financial advisor, with an air quotes financial advisor, is, is just mathematically very, very likely to have been one of those people that's in the first year or two of the business selling stuff because it's actually a huge number of the total financial advisors and there's a pretty high volume of them because we rotate them through them every every 12 to 24 months and recruiting more and, and losing them and then recruiting more and losing most of them. And so it it leaves a bad taste, I think, in everyone's mouths when we build that kind of career path in the industry. Exactly. So share with us your journey then. What got you started in the financial planning world in the first place? What led you to it? And how did that work in kind of the college days and coming out of college times? Yeah, it was it was a total accident. I, I went into college and like, I don't know what it was, a third of the undergrads at the time, you know, declared that I was pre-med. Um, but to me, I always wanted to follow the footsteps or path of my father, who was a, a physician, did family practice. And I just kind of loved, you know, how he would talk about his workday. You know, he's on his feet all the time, seeing other people, lifelong relationships, you know, and really just trying to help people make better decisions and, you know, with their health decisions or, you know, help them identify problems or concern areas and really just make them feel better when they leave than when they got there. But in college, you know, a couple of uh, early morning labs for chemistry and some of the, the, the organic chemistry type of things that or, that, or goes the knockout. <laughs> exactly. That, that made it very obvious to me in a hurry that 
that wasn't going to be the path for me. And so, you know, I was kind of floundering around for, I don't know, another semester or so trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And eventually, as I was looking at classes for the following semester, I stumbled upon this introduction of financial planning. And at that point in time, I just kind of decided, well, no matter what I do from a career standpoint in life, this probably seems like it's pretty good stuff to know anyway. Mm. um, So I don't know if I actually want to be a financial planner. I don't know what that is, but like, hey, learning about money stuff is probably helpful in general. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, lo and behold, you know, the first first couple of weeks, we started learning about time value of money and, you know, just kind of concepts like that, some of the basics. And I just kind of fell in love with it and never turned back. Very cool. And so what did that look like? Were you actually getting a, a degree in financial planning, like a concentration in financial planning? Because I know the different schools have different structures for that. and It was even more varied 15 plus years ago. Yeah. And so at that point in time, that was you know, the University of Wisconsin where I went was one of the very early adopters of CFP programs. And so, you know, again, kind of on the, the lucky side of things, you know, I didn't know what a CFP was, but it was a designation. And once I declared that as a major, I learned, you know, the, the coursework I was going to take there was going to push me down the path to be able to obtain that once I graduated. So kind of thought, well, this is pretty cool. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. So all my undergrad studies were focused on or emphasized the CFP coursework, you know, with a bunch of just additional things to kind of round it out. And interestingly too, like one of the strange things about it back then that didn't make any sense to me at all is this financial planning program and the curriculum was housed in the School of Human Ecology. And I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense. You know, this is all about, you know, investing in finance. It should be in the business school. But sitting here today, you know, 20 plus years later, it makes total sense because this is so much more of a human experience than it is just business or finance when you're dealing with clients and things. And some of the classes that I thought were an annoyance then, like counseling psychology, you know, back then it didn't make sense. You know, why would we do this? And today it makes perfect sense. In fact, I wish I would have paid a lot more attention during that class and could even almost retake it. So even in those early years, like I was a lot more drawn to or or interested in, you know, some of the numbers and data and the magic of compounding. But, you know, there was some groundwork laid there for, you know, household economics and the interaction of families and, you know, the dynamics that you have to navigate there as well. So started taking CFP classes, fell in love with the program. This stuff's really cool. And then what, like you just graduating and needed a job, was so into it, was gung-ho, like I'm going to find me a financial planning job. Uh, how did that build up by the by the end? So obviously a lot of us, there's there's the things we major in college and then there's the stuff we actually do after college. And Yeah, exactly. Often there's no connect, connection between the two. So what was the actual transition from college to the advisor world? So I'm a, a fairly bad student, I would call it, in that kind of the tr- traditional classroom setting is is a difficult place for me. Like conferences are a great example. You know, sitting through a bunch of presentations over the course of a day is wildly difficult for me. So I'm often one of the people that's pacing around in the back of the room, you know, kind of dipping in and out of things session-wise. Rarely I'm sitting down. And, you know, even at conferences, I get way more enjoyment and fulfillment, I would say, out of the hallway conversations just kind of interacting with peers on more of a one-on-one level. So, you know, you backdate or backpedal that to the college experience and, you know, it's the same deal. I, I didn't sit through classroom settings all that well. And so how I decided to, I guess, take the learning process to a next level was through 
through job experience. So while I was there, my junior and senior year of college during the spring semesters, I was working, I don't know what it was, probably 15, 20 hours a week at a Jackson Hewitt filing taxes. And then at kind of at the same time, there was some overlap with that during different semesters. I had internships with a Morgan Stanley advisory office and, you know, what was then American Express Financial Advisors or Ameriprise, you know, both in the Madison area. And so both of those kind of gave, you know, some really just interesting insight on the industry and how it works and what jobs can look like. I, I guess I would say that kind of accelerated or, or brought to life a lot of the classroom things for me a lot, a lot more than just kind of sitting there and reading, <laughs> reading the textbooks. And and so, what were the takeaways as you started seeing advisory firms? As you said, like a, a Morgan Stanley office, a Ameriprise or American Express Financial Advisors back then. You know that that's a particular type of environment. Those are much larger firms. You know, particularly then, still doing a lot of their own proprietary products, so a little a little bit more of a sales bent at the time. So, what was your takeaway as you started looking at those advisory firms and what they were doing relative to what you'd been learning in the classroom? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, you know, there there are great takeaways and not so great takeaways from from both of them. I definitely learned and can see how hard it was to get going in this industry and how hard it was to get clients. You know, especially on the American Express side, we were trying to support a lot of the newer newer advisors and help them kind of complete financial plans and write up you know recommendations and things like that to free them up so that they could just sit there and hammer phones. And a little bit of the time during Morgan Stanley, I mean, a lot of what we were doing there was was meeting prep and. I kind of laugh about it now, given you know some of the technology and tools. But back then, we were like hand calculating rates of return on Excel sheets, you know, in preparation. But a smaller component of my time there was literally running through a phone book and calling people to try and set meetings. You know, so those parts of it scared me to death. And I was like, I don't know how this is going to work if this is how it goes because I don't like doing that. I don't like you know, asking, or I guess the sales process. And eventually I learned over time, you know, sales is only really a dirty word if you don't really believe in what you're doing. Otherwise, you're just kind of telling a story. Sales is only a dirty word if you don't really believe in what you're selling. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I wouldn't even say that anything that was going on there was like, bad. I think the advisor I was working for was was very good and she had her heart in the right place for sure, but I just didn't understand it. And so picking up a phone and trying to talk to people about something that was sort of like a, you know, almost like a black box to me was was difficult. The flip side of it is just kind of being in a professional office and watching people, you know, how they carry themselves. Everybody was grinding away at different levels. You know, in some of these bigger offices, you can kind of see the difference between those that are still trying to get there and those that have already made it, so to speak. And so, you know, it's kind of just fascinating to to see all those interactions and also a bit of what, you know, what life can look like and be like if if you make it. So how did that how did that shape the experience for you as you're then deciding, okay, now I'm graduating, I got to figure out what to go and what to do. Yeah. So after, after those experiences, so I kind of had a super senior semester, I'll call it. So between my, my fourth and four and a half year, that summer I did an internship at Northwestern Mutual. And I was really drawn to that as kind of an, a, an opportunity to actually go out and start meeting with people, start helping them do some financial planning and you know, just work through that whole, that whole process and, you know, learn a ton from that. You know, I know more about insurance now than, than I would have otherwise, you know, it was kind of, a, kind of an interesting thing where, you know, I, I learned once I got there, they don't hire a lot of finance people. And one of my managers said is part of the reason for that is there's a tendency to ask too many questions, but I mean, I genuinely had a curiosity of how this stuff works. 
and really wanted to to understand it rather than just going out and trying to trying to sell the product before I really knew what was going on with it. And so uh, between those three, you know, I, I I saw enough to really get committed to this being my career path, but just started to kind of scratch and claw and kind of the concept is there's there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a different way to get into it, a different way to learn from it without just jumping right off of, I don't know, the proverbial ledge and and into into the fire. And so my student group back then would take I would just kind of term glorified field trips. So we'd go, you know, we'd visit firms in the Madison area, but then we'd go to Chicago and visit advisory firms there. Milwaukee, we would visit firms there. Well, I always wanted to go back to Minneapolis and St. Paul, where I'd grown up. And so I kind of coordinated and orchestrated a field trip to bring a bunch of students up to tour firms in Minneapolis. Well, the big problem that I had there is I didn't know anybody. And so I'm going, well, you know, you just pick up... (laughs) pick up the phone and start calling firms. And so what I ended up doing is just going to the Financial Planning Association and just kind of thought, well, if nothing else, if I just email the, the president of the FPA, they should be able to make some introductions for me. And the president there of the you finan- go. Yeah, the f- president of the Financial Planning Association of Minnesota at the time was Kathy Longo, who was one of the shareholders at accredited investors. So they were gracious enough to host us. They even hosted like a kind of a lunch um, session where they invited the whole board from the Financial Planning Association here to come and visit with us and kind of have some conversations. And and we went and visited a couple other firms, but Kathy and I stayed in touch. And, you know, to make a long story short, that is how I ended up getting my first job there. So I, I a couple of questions here. One, because I'm, I'm just wondering, there are a lot of people who come in and see the sales side of the business, maybe get lucky enough to not just get sucked into a job and then discover that there's a lot of sales at the firm. Like you got some internship opportunities early on to see like, okay, there is certainly a salesy side of this business. I guess I'm just wondering for some advisors or, or some, I guess, newer folks who may not even become advisors, like they see that sales stuff and they and they basically just, basically just nope right on out the door. And you didn't. There was something you saw that made you want to stay. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, what, what is it you saw that made you want to stay that you're still here and, and said, like, I want to do this. I'm going to find another way to get in the door as opposed to, yeah, maybe this just isn't for me because uh, this is more sales stuff than I wanted. Well, I mean, on one hand, I can be pretty stubborn. So that was a component of it. Um, it helps sometimes. <laughs> I understand. But in, I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, that was kind of in the early phases of when concepts like fee only were becoming a thing and fiduciary was becoming a thing. And even in, you know, kind of our college experience, the overwhelming majority of what we interacted with was the wirehouse side, some broker dealers and insurance people. But rarely did we have much interaction with these things called RIAs, especially fee only RIAs. And so it's kind of another one of those, those deals where, you know, I basically prior to college almost had never used the internet. And the first time that I had like an Ethernet connection was my college dorm room. Otherwise, all like, you know, AOL dial-up stuff. And so there was enough information. I mean, it wasn't great. It's not like it is today, but there was enough information out there that you could find by searching around that says, you know, hey, there actually is a different universe emerging out here where it, it, it isn't so sales or product driven. It's more planning driven and planning focused. And so that that just kind of led to a constant almost obsession of trying to find a place where we could learn that side of things before having to take a leap and going to hang out your own shingle. 
So you were by then coming to this with a with a vision and goal of saying, I want to figure out how to find a fee only firm, an RIA firm, because I want to do the planning stuff and I've seen the sales side and I don't want to come in on the sales side. So I'm consciously looking for this. Yes. Yep. Okay. And so then you're looking around at firms. You want to be back in the in the Minneapolis St. Paul area. You do the cold outreach, the FPA present to get some local firms to meet up with and now getting connected to accredited investors, which for those who don't know is a, a very sizable RA in, in Minneapolis uh, now and and even then was was sizable at the time. So I guess I'm wondering, like, how did this actually turn into a job for all those that are still just literally trying to figure out, you know, A, how do you get your foot in the door to get a job? And B, how do you get your foot in the door to get a job with what I'm guessing from your backstory is perhaps less than stellar grades? Well, that's a good question. The actual like conversation slash interview slash dating process, whatever you want to call it, was relatively short. I mean, it was a rapidly growing firm. You know, when I when I joined there, I think I was like the 11th or 12th employee and they were probably overseeing or, or, you know, AUM was somewhere in the 300 or three and a quarter range. And by the time that I left, you know, three and a half or four years later, you know, it had grown to, I think it was almost 30 employees and close to, you know, 750, 800 million uh, under management. So, you know, they had room for someone like me to come in. You know, I think that, you know, part of it was they didn't really even know that Wisconsin had a CFP program. And so there was curiosity there of, you know, what is this program like and what kind of kind of talent or ability is coming out of a place like this? You know, I think that the internship experience definitely helped, you know, having seen and experienced those places and really just the conversation we just had that, you know, I've I've been in those environments and that's not really the place for me to start out. So I'm looking for something different. I'm really drawn to this fiduciary side of the business and you know want to want to really learn from the best i i'm i'm struck the cuz i just i think it's a it's it's an important point that a lot of that a lot of advisors miss particularly when they're when they're looking for pathways and and coming into the industry just finding a firm that's growing like that's really growing has a strong organic growth rate of its own like a lot of doors get opened when firms are growing quickly cuz they they just need people and they need good people and they tend to create more positions over time. So that's what happens when it's growing and, and firms tend to promote from within if only because just the, the known, the known commodity of you doing the good work that you do is a lot easier than going outside anyways, if they're, if they're confident that you can move up. And so it's one of those things I think we often don't ask enough about when we're looking for jobs or interviews. I know no one had, had certainly ever told me the, the importance of just, trying to find a firm that's got a good strong growth rate because it opens a lot of doors both up up front and ongoing for your career just to be at a place that's got a healthy growth rate. Exactly. So so what was the role when you joined? Like what is what did that you know first not sales job <laughs> out of college actually look like? So, I mean, the title was financial planning specialist. It's a lot of what people would call, I would say, you know, sort of in the pair planner script or associate advisor type of a role. And the overwhelming majority of it was just helping meeting prep, you know, running financial plans, you know, trying out and testing new software. I think I think that was, an, you know, kind of another thing that attracted them to me is, you know, our program back at Wisconsin. Then we we were 
we, you know, we had licenses for Navaplan. And if you remember the old Navaplan, I mean, that thing was a beast. Yep. And super, super nuanced and kind of finicky, you know, in terms of having to know and understand what, you know, where to put things and how it works. And they were exploring new financial planning software, and that was one of them. So that became one of my first. Meaning they, they were not Navaplan users, but were considering Navaplan. And so like, oh, Joseph's, Joseph's familiar with Navaplan knows how to use it. That, that, that seems very helpful. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, I kind of took that one on as sort of my first major project, I guess I would call it, was to figure that darn thing out <laughs> and, and determine whether that was, you know, the right, the right software for, for the firm to go forward with. But, you know, I think I had, you know, at that time, that the, the way that it worked is there was, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, I don't know, four to six of us probably as financial planning specialists at that point in time. And we were all responsible for somewhere, I would say, in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 households. There was a quarterly meeting scheduled there. So it was a lot of just preparation for meetings, try to track down information from clients or their their other allied professionals and organize everything, you know, within within the the, the accredited structure so that it was tidied up and all the information was there so that once the meetings came up, the advisory team was ready to do their thing. Interesting. So they were on a they were on a quarterly meeting cadence with clients. Mm-hmm. Okay. So fair, fairly intensive by current industry standards and likewise means lo- lots of prep work to do, which is a great opportunity when you're trying to get going. Yeah, exactly. So, so how did the role evolve then as you're, as you're doing this for the first couple of years with them? You know, the team expanded pretty significantly. So, you know, all of a sudden I was working with different, you know, different managers and different people you know, shuffling client relationships around. Eventually we were, you know, in meetings, you know, supporting some of those conversations, but, you know, more and more from the beginning was, you know, doing some of the more simple things. Then eventually a lot more just coordination on things like, you know, what's, how do we help make the refinance process go more smoothly or easier for the client? Or, you know, we're making recommendations to adjust some things on, you know, homeowners and auto insurance or restructuring, you know, a client's life insurance program. And so we're the ones that were interacting with, with the agents outside of, outside of the firm and just kind of coordinating everything that we could possibly do and making it as easy as possible for the client. And so what came, what came next? Obviously you're not, you're not still there. So, so what, like how long were you there and, and what ultimately led to a, a change or a transition to something else? So I ended up staying there for, you know, three and a half and four years was a amazing experience. And, you know, still to this day, you know, I haven't seen a more complete or comprehensive financial planning offering, I would say. There was, there was one experience in particular that I remember where we had just moved into a new office space, a beautiful new office space, super cool spot. One of the longer term clients of the firm came in and, you know, they were just kind of having this fun story. I think it was uh, one of the partners, Will, the original founders and this client were just talking about how when they first met, you know, they had this kind of dingy office in downtown Minneapolis, wasn't in the nicest part of town. I think it was like next door to a next door to a strip club or something like that as the the legend goes. Affordable rent. 
Affordable, affordable rent. Exactly. And so, you know, the client was saying something to the effect of, you know, we almost didn't go in to that meeting when we got to the parking lot and, you know, it turned into, well, we're so glad we did. And this has been so meaningful for us. We'd never be where we are if we didn't, you know, engage in this relationship. And we're so happy to see the success that you're having as well. And that also happened to kind of coincide with the time where credit, I think it just raised their minimums to $2 million for new clients. And so, you know, I kind of had this moment of, you know, this is, this is an amazing place and they do great work, but stories like that probably aren't going to happen here because people, you know, people in those early phases of life, thirties and forties that became the core of that clientele didn't qualify to be clients anymore. You know, going back to kind of the whole family practice thing and my dad's experience that, you know, that's the biggest draw here for me to this type of a position in this type of a career is those relationships. And so, you know, I had this just tugging that was there, you know, constantly for, I don't know what it was, a number of months, might've even been a year where there was just kind of this, I I, I couldn't shake the idea that having, you know, $2 million minimums, minimums that high for the rest of my life, there, there just would have been something missing. Like I just, it wasn't going to satisfy me, you know, for the rest of my life. And so that's when I kind of started exploring, well, there's got to be, there's got to be firms like this that don't have that high of minimums. And that kind of launched this journey of, you know, I went to, you know, several, several other RAs in town, pretty good experiences at, at most of them. And, and ultimately, you know, led to launching Pitzel Financial a number of years later. So help me understand a little more just what, what was the what was the blocking point exactly? I mean, you can you would sort of frame this around just cl- clients you can have long term relationships with, but I feel like you can you can still have a long term relationship if they they may happen to be starting at at two million or some higher number, but like there's still two million dollar people can still turn into even more thankful five million dollar people. Like they can they can still grow, they can still have a journey. So just what like what what was it that wasn't clicking or wasn't working for you? Well, part of it there too was just kind of thinking about career progression. I mean, at that time there was three three shareholders and they were all kind of the rainmakers. They were the people that were bringing in bringing in these clients. And so, you know, I started to just kind of tie strings together, right, wrong or indifferent that the opportunity to become, you know, a partner and a shareholder in a place like this is tied to you know, your ability to bring it business. And I'm, I don't know, 25 or 26 at the time looking around going, I don't really know that many people with $2 million. So, you know, let alone liquid and investable. So, so there was a little bit of, a little bit of that component of it. But I mean, the biggest thing was just a desire to, you know, help people get to that point and journey through kind of the, the, the hard phases of life and work toward that ultimate kind of end game rather than, you know, kind of just jumping in midway through or in the later stages of that process. Interesting. It's a, it's a striking point that, you know, the, the, the firm built itself when, you know, the, the founders were in their, I I guess sounds like thirties and forties building with clients in their thirties and forties who had, you know, the, still limited dollars we tend to have in our 30s and 40s then 
the firm grew, the clients grew. Now it's a it's a much larger firm with much more affluent clients. But growing the firm at that point meant you had to get clients based on where clients had gotten to at that time, not where they were. I.e., like you couldn't get the two hundred thousand dollar clients that they got when they built the business. You had to get the two million dollar clients that they now had at the business that had grown. Correct. Yep. And so that became the blocking point of not the people I'm most excited to work with and not quite sure what my path to partnership is because these are this is not the crew I hang out with. <laughs> right. Evenings and weekends. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So how did you find the next leap? I mean, just where where did you go next or, or what was the criteria even to figure out where you were going to go next? So while I was at, you know, a credit, there were a couple of, you know, specific experiences there. I started getting really involved in the FPA and FPA next gen, you know, built all kinds of relationships. You know, I ended up being on a bunch of committees within the FPA of Minnesota, you know, started a couple of like peer groups or study groups. And so, you know, once I, once I had sort of made the decision that it was time to go, finding the next opportunity was not a problem. They were sort of finding me. So Janet Sanzik's been a longtime mentor of mine, very great friend. And she had made an introduction to another advisor here in town by the name of Eric Molesky. And he and I had had just had a couple of conversations and I really liked kind of Eric's demeanor, his way about going about things. It was a much smaller firm, but similar uh, structurally in that it was, you know, fee fee only firm. And so I ended up making the decision to leave accredited and go and join him. Talk to me a little bit more about just involvement in FPA, creating study groups, like just you you had said you know, by 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 the time it was it was ready to the, by the time you decided you were going to make a change it wasn't hard to find the job opportunities that's i think still a unique thing for a lot of advisors who are like yeah i'm not sure i want to be here and i have no idea where to go and and who else out there has a good firm and and what would be a good place to join so talk to us more about just I guess, FPA or whatever you were doing that meant that by the time you were ready to make a change, finding a firm to work with was no big deal. You know, I think one of the most important characteristics of this industry and and, and succeeding in this industry is, you know, <laughs> having a genuine curiosity, whether that's about your clients or just other people in general, how other firms work. Um, you know, we can all get stuck in, stuck in ruts real easily. There's There's been places that I've been in the past where it's, well, this is how we've done things for the last 20 years and it works. So why, why change? And, you know, that's, that's a place I never want to get to, you know, complacency like that is one of my biggest fears. And so I'm always having conversations with people even back then. And it was legitimately just out of, well, you know, I I know one way of doing things and you, you know, you start to figure out very quickly that there are so many different ways to do it. There's so many different pieces of technology and tools and, you know, all of it is just, you know, you get into some of these firms and it's kind of like, well, where's, you know, what's, what's the value I'm bringing to this firm? If I really want to progress from a career standpoint and I can't bring in clients, you know, at least maybe I can bring in this new tool or this new resource or make this connection or that connection. You know, it really just became a process of trying to, trying to constantly learn what else is out there from a, from a deliverable standpoint 
and just kind of naturally as a byproduct of that, you know, those connections and relationships end up leading to different opportunities or different, I don't know, different, you, you just, you have no idea, I guess I would say, when those connections are going to come back and help you in a different way later on. And so what did you do just to, to find opportunities? I mean, like beyond just literally, you know, pay, pay my FPA registration fee. I mean, just what were you doing that opened doors or created opportunities? Really basic stuff. Just going to, you know, going to meetings and conferences and having conversations with as many people as I could. So that's local meetings, national meetings? Both. Yep. Okay. And was that something like, did the, did the firm support that and let you do that? Or did you have to go make that happen and write checks on your own? No, they were super supportive of it. And I know that that's kind of an, a problem area um, within the industry is that a lot of firms are pretty guarded against things like that. But, you know, they gave me all kinds of opportunities, you know, when next gen launched, you know, or in the early years, you know, you probably remember Michael. I mean, there was, there was, <laughs> there was a lot of tension between the older demographic and that next gen group. Yes. And so there was definitely skepticism, but still it was, you know, more the mentality of, well, I guess let's try it and see what's, see what it's really all about. And, you know, almost like, can you turn the ship? You know, can we work together, you know, as this network of, you know, ragtag bunch of 20 and 30 somethings to kind of change the, change the script, so to speak. They were also super supportive of things like FPA residency. You know, that was one of the turning points, I think, in terms of how I understood financial planning kind of mechanics and what I was doing on a day-to-day basis ultimately ends up getting getting delivered. <laughs> you know, and so so having experiences like that completely accelerated the growth trajectory or growth path for me. And it I mean, it made me a lot more interested in in being involved and staying involved in in financial planning. So for those who aren't familiar, can you explain what FPA residency is? It's been a long time. <laughs> I mean, the, the basic gist of it is is you show up to this setting, and 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 every FPA residency has kind of a dean or a lead person, and then there are our mentors. I think at the time there was you know one dean and maybe three or four mentors that were there. And you know, as I kind of look back my career path now, I mean, the the majority of them I have stayed in touch with, or still, you know, when you see them at conferences say hi, you know, maybe a social media interaction here and there, but it was a really cool experience. And, and especially for, for me where, you know, pretty much my whole <laughs> existence and day was inside of software programs and, you know, really it, it, focusing on numbers and data. Well, and you get there and there's no software, there's no computers, you're, you're doing everything by hand on like flip charts, but trying to do financial planning and deliver financial planning to clients. The whole kind of basic premise of it is, you know, at first, and you kind of go through three different phases, three different phases of life for the same client over time and how things evolve. And so, you know, the first version, as I recall it, everybody's sitting there and trying to make the numbers work and trying to make like the results of a financial plan successful for this client. Well, it was impossible. The numbers didn't work. And so they start to just break down and beat down kind of how you're delivering things where everybody naturally is anchored on kind of numbers and data almost like that's the crutch, right? And, and, and that's kind of how the first several days kind of went is just, you know, you, you're just getting, you're just getting pounded about, you know, how this is about people. This is about people. Stop focusing on the numbers. And then by the end of it, 
you know, naturally the planned deliverable and how that kind of went was way more fun. Like the creativity that went into how things were delivered and you lighten the mood and, you know, just make it more of a fun and an interesting experience for, for the client and just kind of tying, I, it, it ends up tying, you know, you end up tying all the client values together with what the plan recommendations and things look like. And I don't, it, you know, it's really, it's a really cool and unique experience, but it totally reframes the financial planning process from being so heavily focused on the data to really focusing you on the person. So you started out in this, uh, I guess, really, as I think of it, like back office role, right? Just me- meet- meeting prep and plan support. When when did it turn, I guess, client facing? Like, at, at what point in the journey do you start getting your own your own clients, and how does that transition? Well, it started to inch that way more and more. Like towards my towards the end of my my time in accredited, I was in more and more meetings. It wasn't all of them. There were certain relationships where you know it kind of had evolved to. There's sort of a three-tiered structure. There was a there's a, a a principal or a partner on each relationship, a manager, and then the financial planning specialist. And so, certain relationships would be the partner and the planning manager, and then others ended up being the partner and me or the planning specialist. So there was more and more of that happening. But then, you know, once I left there and went went to work at Gen Financial with with Eric, basically from day one, he had me in meetings, and it was ba- almost every meeting. In every conversation. So, um, you know, after that point forward, everything was much more client centric or, or, or client facing, I guess I would say. And so how did it change for you when you just, when you went from mostly doing this behind the scenes to being, being outright in the client meetings? I mean, the, you know, the, the, the awakening moment really started to happen, you know, once, once I went from behind the scenes to actually being in there with human beings from the point where I started to at least observe the interactions with, you know, between the advisor and client, um, that just brought all the numbers and data to life. You know, when you're sitting there on the screen and you don't know the personalities, personalities of the people and, you know, you don't really hear a lot of the, you know, more goals-based or, or life-based conversations. I don't want to say it's meaningless, but it carries a lot less meaning. Right. And as soon as I started seeing people and understanding kind of, you know, just, just seeing body language and seeing and hearing, you know, what, what really concerns them, what are they, you know, skeptical about? What about, everything that's going on or their, are their fears or what are they excited about? I mean, it completely changed how planning was delivered and what kind of things I was trying to solve for. And so what came next? So you like you, you're, you're doing, you know, that sort of pair planner, associate planner work behind the scenes. You get some time at Gen Financial where now you're in the meetings and getting to see clients. So how, how long did that continue? And then what, what came next in that evolution? Yeah, so I was there for a couple of years at Jen, and there's there's sort of a you know there's there's always kind of this fit component: a client's a right fit, or employees a good a good fit, or our employers a good fit. You know, I think I think people need to have that conversation. You know, maybe more than they should. Eric had a wonderful lifestyle practice, and he and I got along really well, and maybe that was 
part of the reason that it, you know, it ultimately ended up not working as we were just too much alike in certain ways, just in terms of like the lens of, you know, how we, how we view life and, and whatnot, like, you know, he's just a great person to hang out with all the time. But, you know, he was in a phase of life too, had three young daughters. He had growth plans he wanted to, but at the same time, the types of things that I really wanted to do at a place like that would have been so disruptive to his life. <laughs> what, <laughs> you know, did, just in terms you, what did you want to do that is going to be so disruptive? You know, coming, coming from a place like, like an accredited investors where it's a very broad, broad deliverable and a lot of firms tend to stay a little bit more focused on things. So, you know, wanting to bring a whole pile of additional planning components to the process and, I mean, really just bringing a ton of more work into what we were already doing, which is just additive, <laughs> you know, to the process without necessarily, at least in the immediate term, resulting in a whole lot of additional revenue, for lack of a better way of putting it. And so, you know, I started to kind of push on some things and, you know, some of it just, again, it just started to wear me. There was just something in the back of my mind going, it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right. And you know, he's got, he's got a really great thing here, but then, you know, also during that process, like this was 2007 and, and into 2008. And so I got married on September 6th of 2008 and congratulations. Good, <laughs> good time. Yeah. And so, you know, sh- shortly after that wedding, my wife and I were on our honeymoon in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico absolutely oblivious to everything else that was going on. I completely shut everything off. I never really checked in, you know, from like a computer or anything standpoint. And so one morning we were sitting around the uh, pool bar and there was this couple there from Houston, Texas that we had kind of gotten to know throughout the week. And they were just kind of lamenting uh, what was going on. And at that time, what they were concerned with was that Hurricane Ike was about to make landfall. And so I kind of had this, you know, sort of, oh crap moment, not because of anything really related to that. I mean, we live in Minnesota. It's not really a threat for hurricanes, but we had a connecting flight that was going through, <laughs> going through Texas. And I had to figure out if we were going to get rerouted or what was going on. So I went up to the business center and of course, they had whatever they had on CNBC, probably. And the bottom of the screen basically said, Wall Street has completely imploded. <laughs> so, it's like, oh, well, that's my business. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So then we also all of a sudden had a couple problems to deal with there. You know, for, <laughs> I don't know what it was, maybe a few hours. You know, I kind of just kind of became obsessed with everything that was going on. And then finally, I just threw up my hands and I'm like, I I have no idea. And there's nothing I can do from here. This is impossible to follow right now. And so, you know, fast forward a couple of days later, you know, finally, you know, get on the plane and head back home, made it, <clears throat> made it back there safe. And then my first day back in the office was, I think it was a Friday morning. And so I, I was kind of just sorting out, sorting through emails and just trying to get caught up with what was going on in the world. It was, you know, obviously like drinking completely through a fire hose. And we're trying to respond to, you know, people and triage, kind of the whole situation. Um, and then, you know, shortly thereafter, this was a, you know, this was totally a pre-planned thing. So it was nothing that you really do about it. But Eric, the, the, the following week was going on, you know, kind of a lifelong, a lifelong 
kind of trip that he wanted to do is out doing an elk hunt, you know, somewhere out in Colorado or Wyoming with zero cell phone signal. And so all of a sudden that next week, you know, phone calls started coming in. Some of these clients I hadn't even met yet, you know, and I, I mean, I could have been Warren Buffett on the other end of that line and these people wouldn't have cared. You know, they wanted to talk to their advisor. And so that was a, that was a really difficult week for me. <laughs> Not only the, you know, the shock of what happened on the, while we were on our, our honeymoon, but then that following week, just trying to sort through the whole mess. Anyway, it, it just kind of goes back to the same point of, you know, I absolutely total, you know, total respect for this trip that he took, you know, he should have taken it, but it also as, you know, just kind of a young aspiring planner in kind of a support capacity, you know, felt like being on a little bit of an Island there for a while. Right. And that, that hurt, but, but anyway, I mean, I, in general, I had a really good, really good experience at Jen, but again, you know, it, it really just kind of was, well, if, you know, I'm, I want to build something and build something relatively rapidly that is probably going to disrupt this guy's life. And so, you know, that led to kind of a another another point of exploration where I was trying to find another fit. And during that time, I had started to kind of get obsessed about, you know, financial psychology, you know, just kind of the human interaction of, of money. So the next firm I ended up going to uh, was a firm called Mindful Asset Planning. And one of the big draws there was a husband and wife, um, Steve and Susan. And Susan actually was a financial therapist. And so that component of it was a really interesting draw for me, just in terms of learning, you know, how how that interaction works and how that would kind of weave into the overall financial planning process. A little bit of a similar story there. You know, they had they had a really nice firm and were in a comfortable stage, I guess I would say, of their career, albeit you know, one thing I will say was, you know, this still was like 2008 or early 2009. And even in the midst of that, you know, they, they made a decision to add me to the staff and hire me while, you know, presumably rev- <laughs> revenue is not in good shape. <laughs> right. Or at least not nearly as good as it had been not, not so long prior. Yep. And yeah, I mean, I had, a you know, again, a, a really good experience there, but that was kind of more of a more of a meeting, I guess, a meeting cadence or deliverable of this is kind of how we deliver everything. And it was fairly uniform, which is great from a, from a business standpoint, more of the, like, we have one meeting a year for, for a few hours, maybe some interaction kind of in, you know, in between that. And, you know, that, that sort of deliverable, you know, again, just kind of going back to the, you know, you know almost like the student or conference or, or, or lecture thing, like, I just don't sit still very well and, and for long periods of time. So, you know, again, it was just kind of one of those things where, you know, it's, it's probably, it probably wasn't the greatest fit and changing things probably just wasn't going to happen, at least not for the foreseeable future. And so that again, kind of led to another, I don't know, phase of trying to find something different. And so that, you know, kind of somewhere in, in, in the middle of there, I met, what is my former partner? And he had kind of just started to take over the business of a retiring advisor. So he, you know, he had acquired a business and his background was much more on the investment side of things. Um, CFA, very analytically inclined. And so we started to have conversations about what does this look like if, you know, I really stay fixated on the investment side and then you, Joe, you know, can kind of 
build out or, or, or focus more on the financial planning side of things. And so, you know, again, it's one of those deals where, you know, on the surface, it seems, it seems like a super good fit. And I mean, in general, in general, it was, I mean, that was, you know, I think when he, when he took over the firm, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 or 70 million under management. And, you know, four years later, by the time I left, we were in the 150 or 160 range, something like that. And so I had really good growth. And, and, and that's kind of what, what really ended up happening is I was taking sort of the best of everything that I had experienced at accredited gen financial mindful asset planning, you know, and kind of brought those into the, in as kind of the financial planning process we were going to deliver there. And that was my first experience of really doing it my own way. And when was this time-wise? Like how far into your career are you at this point? So at that point, I was probably seven, eight years in. And so it feels like this is this this was sort of a turning point on the on the journey over the first seven years. That this was the first time you you really went from the I like I'm I'm going to be in an employee support role, and you know I got some ideas about how the firm can change, but it's their it's their firm, and I got to manage to that. Versus getting to the point where it's like, no, I'm actually going to build this. Like this is going to be my firm or mine with a partner, but like I'm ready to actually be the one that builds it directly. Correct. Yep. So what brought you there? Because just that's a fairly big transition in and of itself. What led you to say, I, uh, I'm, I'm taking the leap or I need to take the leap or now's the time to take the leap to do this? Well, that was kind of the first time that I really started to feel ready to do it. My older brother is the CPA. He's been running a, you know, a nice size CPA practice for the last 12 years or so. But almost from the day that he acquired that firm and started doing it, he'd been courting me to come over and just bolt on and, you know, kind of have the the CPA CFP partnership thing in place. And so the interesting thing about you asking about being ready is, you know, at that point in time that that leap took place, you know, I felt ready to kind of take on more of the lead advisory type of functions or the building out the planning process, you know, and doing all of that. And doing it in sort of more of like a partnership capacity that we did, but I did not feel ready to go completely on my own, bolt on with my brother's CPA firm and take off and run from there. So that took a lot of conversation. And, you know, when I finally made that decision, you know, my brother actually felt pretty rejected by that and was was sort of hurt by it. And, you know, it put a damper on our relationship for a couple of years, but it was the right decision at the time really for both of us, if you look at it, you know, honestly and objectively in hindsight, we went down that partnership path for a number of years. And a lot of what I started doing then was getting a lot more involved in writing and social media. And uh, we had a firm there where, you know, the average client was much more like the, you know, the same age and demographic as the, the advisor that was retiring. And so, you know, I'm kind of looking at it from a, hey, we're early 30s, you're going to be going at this for quite some time. And, you know, not to be too too morbid, but it's it's kind of a dying practice in, in its existence now. You know, everybody's in the withdrawal phase, um, a lot of aging people and, you know, that whole interplay was at work. And so I started to focus really heavily on a younger clientele. And, you know, what that turned out to be then was really the Gen X demographic. And so, you know, a lot of the things that we were, we were writing and pushing out in terms of content and where I was sort of interacting and choosing to, you know, spend my time and effort was creating things that would attract that type of client. And so 
we started to onboard a whole bunch of those at, at a pretty rapid pace. You know, at that phase of life, those were the clients that had really good income and were starting to experience, you know, good career success. Family dynamics are starting to get more complicated, running kids around to various activities, you know, and really wanting to have someone that pays attention to the financial side of things. But, you know, at the same time, a lot of them didn't have a, a, a ton of assets, at least not in the the context of what traditional minimums or traditional firms would like to work with. So we were onboarding high volume, low assets. And I'm, you know, I'm a pretty fast paced person. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly slow and deliberate about making decisions, but as soon as they're made, you know, it's go time and 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 let's go. And so it was, you know, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, you sort of had more of a vision of, I want to focus more on this retiree demographic, fits more of, I guess, you know, will be more his personality type and the type of planning that he was planning and investing he was really interested in doing. And I was a lot more interested in kind of this Gen X type of demographic where life was just a lot messier. There was a lot more planning, planning involved in it. And all the conversations were really about lifestyle more than they were about you know, the dollars and cents or what kind of things we should be investing in today. And so eventually that, that led to a split. And that was kind of four years after we had uh, kind of come together in the first place. And so at that point in time, I felt ready at, at the point that he kind of told me this wasn't going to work. Within three months of that, we had just had our second child, my wife and I, moved to a new home and my wife decided to stay home from work to raise her kids. Fantastic time for the you know, major business and life changes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, we <laughs> it was it was absurd. You, you know, you want to talk about a shock, you know, you get approached by by partner firm where it's, you know, we're in a pretty comfortable place at that point in time and he just says, "Well, this isn't going to, you know, this just isn't going to work." And I'm just kind of sitting there going, you know, you know, excuse excuse my language, but holy like you just can't possibly pull the rug out on somebody at this phase of life like that. <laughs> and, you know, on top of that, the, you know, the, the, the conversation was he really wanted to hang on to the core of the clients that were originally acquired from that retiring advisor. And yeah, you know, go, go ahead and take the, these younger families and households. And, you know, that's, that's kind of how we're going to, we're going to part things. And so, you know, there was a little bit of dollars that came in the form of a buyout that actually helped kind of float through that whole process. But, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a total shock. And I think, you know, I think if I recall it, the date was like April 12th or April 13th. And so by that point in time, my older brother had brought my younger brother on to join the accounting firm. And so the two of them have been, you know, kind of together since. And I, I made, you know, they were the first phone call I made is I'm like, hey guys, we just, we need to talk. And of course, they're two days from a tax deadline and they dropped everything on the spot. We went and sat down, met for happy hour, had a few beers and basically had the general structure of how this was going to go outlined on napkins. And so then over the course of the next well, within the next week, we had filed for to establish the RIA, gotten conversations started with the, you know, kind of Schwabs and Fidelities of the world. But then I was trying to figure out, well, how's this going to work? I mean, it's basically just me and me alone. But fortunately, you know, I had a associate there at the time by the name of Kyle Moore that was working with us at that firm. And, you know, we kind of wrestled with and tried to figure out how this was going to be able to work. I wanted to keep Kyle around. Kyle's 
great talent, you know, having a ton of success in his own right now was pretty, you know, pivotal in helping our firm get launched. Well, so part of the arrangement that I made with my brothers, like they wanted to be shareholders in, in the firm, you know, I was bringing in a, a, a you know, decent amount. I was, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of like 17 million, 18 million in assets. So it wasn't like we were starting from zero, but it wasn't a ton either. It wasn't enough to support, you know, two people plus all the expenses of, of running a firm. Well, fortunately, he had space in a CPA firm for us. And so, you know, part of the handshake deal of how this was going to work is, you know, we didn't pay rent or expenses for three years. You know, we provided a decent amount of just startup capital just to get some systems and, you know, furniture purchased and new phones and pay for software and, you know, all those kind of things. So they were providing the space and the technology, the tools, the equipment, you know, we had some admin support from their team and, you know, I was bringing over some clients and some assets and revenue and it was something like 45 households. But so from that time that we met to July 1st of that year, we had our registration completed we were appointed with the custodians we needed to be appointed with. And we had every single client relationship that was coming. All the paperwork was done and signed and ready to go, you know, from the day that July 1st hit. So just crammed in two, two and a half months. Yeah. So it was a super, super fast process. And one of the, you know, one of the things that was kind of a saving grace at the time is in terms of trying to figure out how this is going to work how we're going to build this and how we're going to structure this and how do we have the tools and resources we really need in order to deliver what I wanted to deliver from day one. And I'll never forget, I woke up, you know, in the middle of all this sort of crisis. I mean, you go through those moments and, you know, you have sleepless nights and all of that. And, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of two or three in the morning, I woke up on, on my couch and was like, well, hey, within the last 12 months, Carl Richards and Tim Maurer joined, you know, what, what then was BAM Advisor Services, Buckingham Strategic Partners. And I'm like, well, there's got to be something to that. And I'd heard of BAM and, you know, hadn't had a whole lot of interaction with them in, in my prior years. But the way that I wanted to, you know, invest client money certainly aligned with that. And then, you know, I know that they had gone through, you know, a little bit of a leadership change at that point in time or, or in the very recent past, I guess I should say, and really wanted to be more wealth management or, or, or uh, advisory centric than just being super fixated on investing. So, you know, I shot Tim and Carl an email in the middle of the night. And by the time I woke up at, I don't know, whatever it was, six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, both had written back and, and had made an introduction to some of the people on the Buckingham team. And so we started having those conversations with them really liked what I was hearing, you know, in terms of how their business had evolved and how they support advisors and what they provide. And, you know, we flew down there, spent a day, maybe two, I can't remember, kind of interacting with the team, getting to know some people, seeing how the place works and ended up becoming a part of the BAM Alliance, being a, being a partner firm for their entity. And I mean, I can't say enough of what they've meant over the last seven years, but especially in that first two months or three months, just getting things transitioned and over there's, you know, there's just, there's no way we could have, we could have done it without them. So what was it that, so I guess just help me understand what, what was it that you were, you were getting from them or looking to get from them that 
that you wanted to work with uh, an outsource provider on the on the investment side? Horsepower, uh, more than anything. And so, you know, we talk about like, it, and and I didn't necessarily know how this was going to play out over time, but I just knew that. I, I knew that these are good people and they're talented people. Their their hearts in the right place. Everything they said was the right things. You know, had a lot of faith in the conversations I was having with Carl and Tim, where you know they spoke glowingly of the organization and 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 how it worked. And so, you know, we we took that leap, and you know where where it sits today. You know, I mean, now we're you know we have we have five people here on staff, probably in the process of. You know, we'll probably have a couple more. I mean, within the next six months or so, this will be up to seven. You know, have grown to right around two hundred and seventy million in in assets. You think back to kind of the early accredited days where you know I was the twelfth person at three hundred million. I think you said at Pinnacle, you know, you were two fifty or something like that, and like the eighth or ninth person hired there. That you know, technology and tools have just done so much to allow us to stay a little bit leaner so to speak now we we pay for that right i mean that you know being being a part of buckingham is not inexpensive at all but when i try to add up you know what would it cost to purchase all of the software that we get they serve kind of as our de facto investment policy committee so have our own you know in-house kind of research and investment done our own trading done all the administrative functions compliance support you know, it's probably equivalent to having another four or five people here. But the one thing that's nice about it is, you know, we use Orion kind of as our portfolio management software. Instead of having one person here that is the master of Orion and takes care of everything and everything, you know, they're the expert on it. You know, if that person in, in, in kind of the older days, you know, there were plenty of firms that would have kind of that problem of, you know, this is the portfolio center expert. And if the portfolio center expert leaves, you got a big, big hole <laughs> in the equation. And, you know, I don't know what the, what the Buckingham uh, strategic partner staff is now, but it's a couple hundred people and it's not just one person that owns each particular thing. So like our service team down there is multiple people, although we have kind of one or two we interact with more frequently than anybody else. The fixed income desk tends to be the same several people over and over again, or trading desk for, equities and funds, it's kind of the same people over and over again. But if somebody leaves or somebody's not there, it's a pretty uniform system down there where we know we're going to get a similar experience and a similar deliverable from anybody and everybody that picks up the phone. And so, you know, where where we are today is it allows us to stay so much more focused on our clients and what we're delivering and doing for them than dealing with all this back-end stuff of, you know, by all accounts isn't working today or something didn't reconcile correctly, you know, fidelity charge for a trade when they shouldn't have all that stuff is just, and that's the stuff I hate, you know? So it's been a really, really good relationship. And I didn't know how good it would be back then when it all kind of started. How do you, how do you handle this from a, a, a pricing and, and cost structure then, right? For a lot of firms, just, uh, outsourcing, particularly on the investment end, just leads to the whole like, do I pay their fee out of my fee? Do I pass the three through the client? Does the client pay like my fee for my thing and their fee for their thing? How do you handle working with a TAM platform on the investments? And I guess just what is the overall 
fee model look like for you at, at Pitzel Financial now? So we, as far as, as far as Buckingham is concerned, how I talk about them and explain them is that they're, you know, they're a partner of ours and they're an extension of our firm. And so we pay them out of what the clients pay us. So they never see kind of that separate pass through fee, so to speak. But I, you know, I also consider it, you know, like I said before, you know, it's like having another four or five people here. And so instead of having to hire those people, find the space for those people, you know, buy all of their hardware, software, company benefits, the whole nine yards, all of that is just a cost that we've chosen to incur on our own and consider it just part of our, our business expenses. So it chews up a portion of your of your revenue, but to you just that's that's the revenue you would have had to spend on staff and team and software and rent and the rest to scale up to 270 million correct otherwise you'd have a bunch of admin and investment team that you don't have to have now exactly so it's a it's a staff it's a staff cost trade-off exactly you got it so so help fill us in on just what does the firm look like today i mean you'd mentioned 270 million of of AUM, like how, how many clients is that? Who's on the team? And just what what do you do for clients at this point as you've gone through this journey of comprehensive planning and less comprehensive planning and financial psychology oriented planning and all these different pieces that you've you've gotten a hold of? So who who are you serving and and what are you doing for them? Yeah, so household wise, how the ADV works, I guess, is somewhere in the neighborhood of two hundred and sixty or two hundred and seventy. Now, there are some households that are actually like clients' children where we're not managing very much for them, but are just kind of helping them get started. And then there's a couple of outliers on on the top end as well. But so we have five of us here, myself and another gentleman by the name of Rick Hall, uh, serve as our two kind of lead advisors. And so almost all the client relationships are kind of assigned to or, or overseen by one of the two of us. And then Justin Gabriel, who's been with us for three years, a little over three years, is one of our associate advisors. But as soon as we get a couple more people, you know, hired here, and kind of step him up into a little bit more of a advanced role than that. Uh, and then we hired another associate back in January, Matthew Kalkman, out of one of the local schools here. So he's in serving in the associate capacity as well. And then our administrative or office manager, Ann, is here also. So we, you know, we're, we're kind of a true ensemble or that's the model we're going to follow in that, you know, everybody's going to kind of share duties and responsibilities and client relationships. And there's going to be a lot of interaction and, and, and teamwork involved in all of them. For, for the most part, for the first Four or five years that Pitzel Financial was existence, I guess really the first four years, you know, I kind of was leading every single client relationship. Again, a little over three years ago, started to search for someone that could kind of fill in in a more of a lead financial planner capacity. And at that point in time, Rick was on the verge of leaving a 20 plus year career in the wirehouse side of things and looking for looking for a new position and a new role. And so very capable advisor and has done a terrific job since then. But, you know, while working in kind of that wirehouse environment, I think, you know, he had five kids, his wife was in school. He just never really had the chance or opportunity, I guess, to take the leap and give this a shot on his own. And so 
you know, I was was kind of in the, the the stage at that point in time, or the firm was in the stage at that point in time where, you know, it wasn't about needing someone to come in and go shake the trees out there and bring in business. We kind of had that part solved, and so what we needed was someone that can come in and service these clients and give them the, you know, quote unquote pitzel deliverable, the pitzel experience. And so I, st- I still will take on relationships that are kind of direct referrals from existing clients that that referral is more of a, you know, hey, you need to go work with Joe than it is Pitzel Financial. But for the last, you know, five years, you know, we've we've averaged in excess of 100 client inquiries just from like web search, web presence. Maybe you can call it social media. And I lump stuff like NAPFA in there. And then, you know, we also kind of have the CPA side of things as well. And so, you know, during the tax season or even shortly thereafter, there's always people that are just kind of asking, you know, what kind of things can we offer on the planning side? And they're like, well, why don't you just go across the hall? So a big piece of the growth engine is being attached to the accounting firm and the cross referrals that come from the accounting business over to the the advisory business. Well, when I break down the numbers, roughly it's somewhere around a quarter of our clients or revenue AUM, all of them kind of add up to about the same, have come from the accounting side. And then another quarter to a third is from just people finding us on the internet, for lack of a better way of putting it, you know, just cold inquiries that are coming in, inbound inquiries. Do you know, just what are they searching for to find you? It's, it's fascinating how people get to us. There's different stories all the time. I mean, like there's, there's some that have come from, you know, from the, from the NAPFA and fee-only network, you know, type of searches. But if you, you know, if you search for fee-only, technically, I think we've actually fallen kind of off of this, but for, for a handful of years, you know, I really wanted to show up as a top search and first page of Google, if anyone searched fiduciary or fee-only financial advisor planner, wealth manager in St. Paul, Minneapolis, or Minnesota. And we did and so from my standpoint, you know, those are already pre-screened people. They know what they're looking for. Especially if they're searching not just financial advisor Minneapolis, but like fee-only fiduciary Minneapolis. They've got a clearer, much clearer focus of what they're looking for. Exactly. And so that component was, and then, you know, we were on a couple of a couple of lists, you know, for best advisory firms or top advisory firms, things like that, where, you know, I'm not even really sure how we got on them, but people that would search top advisory firm in the Twin Cities or best advisory firms in the Twin Cities would end up on those <laughs> on those websites and then they'd call us. So, you know, it's a, it's kind of a it's kind of a wide variety, but I used to spend a lot of time blogging and writing, uh, posting things out online and that's that's waned a little bit for I mean largely what has turned out to be physical limitations, which just sucks because I, you know, I used to really really like to write, but the efforts of then have still kind of still continue to flow through today. And so you had said like uh, about a quarter of the growth comes has come from the CPA side, about another quarter or a third of it has come from just the, the you know, lo- local search, geography-based search, search engine optimization in general. And then what what's the, what's the rest of the growth? Is that re- re- classic referrals or are there other, other marketing channels for you? Existing client referrals, and I would just generically say, you know, kind of my personal networks, which interestingly is like, you know, some of that is just sort of friends and, and, and acquaintances that we have from a variety of places. Some of that that I lump into there is other advisory firms. 
you know, where maybe they have higher minimums and these people don't fit the criteria, but they're looking for a good home or, you know, good friends of mine that are advisors where the client doesn't want to work with a close friend. And so, you know, those introductions are, are made. And so, you know, those have come from a whole host of places, but I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm, the nice thing about having kind of the firm structured the way that it is and has been and, you know, having good staff that's really empowered to kind of do whatever they want. I actually I shouldn't say it quite quite to that extreme, but they have the ability to make a lot of decisions on their own and run with things without getting explicit permission, I guess for me, is I am able to be involved in all my kids' activities and sports. You know, coaching the hockey team, coaching the baseball team, being on the board at school. And those all just naturally lead to connections where, you know, I'm not out there like asking people for for business at all, but they see that you have, you carry yourself a certain way, you have a certain personality, they're curious about that. And then naturally, you know, if they end up searching the firm or starting to ask questions, you know, those conversations can, can lead to something different. But yeah, that's kind of how the breakdown really has worked out. When I'm struck in the context of the broader conversation and journey, I feel like you you've you just sort of lived all these steps. You were in the big firm that was that was growing fast, which means you could get in the door and have a lot of opportunity. They had all the resources to do things really comprehensively, but they you know they had already gone so far up market it wasn't good fit. So you went to the the opposite end of the extreme, which was the the small firm, but they weren't growing enough. So the the nature of the lifestyle practice was a constraint when you're the young person who wants to grow. So you kind of found one in the middle that was still too lifestyleist. So you said, fine, I'm going to go build it myself. <laughs> so you went with a partner and started building on your own. And that went for a few years, but then eventually that person wanted to go a different direction than you were. And so it just, I mean, there's just something to me about that journey, right? Again, the, the historical model was, you know, Joe, welcome to the industry. Congratulations on your 23rd birthday. Here's a phone and a phone book. We wish you the best of luck into, into sort of this evolution of no, it was like a literally, I guess a 10 year journey of big firms and small firms and more investment focus and more planning focus and more financial psychology focus and building experience and building confidence and just all the things that go with that to finally say like, yeah, I've been doing this for a while now. I'm, I'm pretty good at it. I know I'm pretty good at it. I'm confident I'm pretty good at it. And now when I have conversations with my peers, like, yeah, some of that turns into business. They ask me what I do and I tell them and they're actually interested because that's okay now and I believe in what I do and I can do it confidently. And just that's the difference between 10 years of experience under your belt in going out to build your firm versus doing it straight out of school with a phone book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it, it's striking to me about the journey. And, and that is, I guess, in essence, at the end of the day, it was it was about seven years before you went into a business development role and and 10 plus before you actually started your own. Correct. Yep. So as you look back at this kind of growth and career journey, what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business that you're actually building yourself? I, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll always be surprised at how much it's taken off and, and continues to have very positive momentum. Um, I always knew it would be hard and there would be bumps along the way, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> shocks like the 2008-9 type of situation, you know, which kind of sort of happened to a degree last March with, you know, kind of the onset of COVID and everything like that, where you kind of have to just be ready for everything and you have to be in a position or, or, or a place where, 
you know, your your head's right, and you have escapes, outlets, uh, relationships with other peers you can connect with when things get really tough and hard. And what are those outlets for you? Like, how where did you find them or create them? My biggest one's golf. <clears throat> so that one's always been kind of a huge passion of mine. Still played really good amount of golf. You know, again, it's you know, there's golf club membership involved. That's another. That's another network. <laughs> but I, I lose myself on the golf course. I, my, the world kind of shuts off to a certain degree and, uh, it's my escape. You know, some people find it in meditation, going for a long run, hitting the gym. Um, mine is, mine's a golf course. The, the complicated part of that is in Minnesota, our golf season kind of has a start and a stop point. (laughs) And so winter gets, winter gets a little bit more complicated, uh, in that regard. But, you know, I still play, uh, still play hockey, uh, one night a week to, to a different degree. I would say that one of the escapes that I do have is, is coaching. I love coaching youth sports. My kids are seven and nine, you know, just seeing all these, all these kids sort of progress throughout the course of a season and all the kind of smiles and giggles and laughs that happen, you know, along the way, it's, it's super fun and it's, you know, it's just life. And, you know, to them, it's all these horrible things that are going on all around the world and that we stay so fixated on it. it, it that, that stuff kind of means nothing to them. They're just out there to have a good time and be with their friends and play a game. So what was the low point for you on this journey? I mean, the place I would pinpoint back to is, you know, kind of you know, ultimately being out of a job at the same time that my wife decided to stay home from work. We had another kid and just bought another house. That That sucked. But I've... I've always kind of had a personality where the more chaotic things are, the better I do. There's an adrenaline rush there. You know, I don't really go into the proverbial fetal position. It's more of a, you know, I'll feel sorry for myself for a couple of days and then let's put on, let's put on the boxing gloves and go. So yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I had, you know, I had many days during that phase, sleepless nights where it was just kind of like, how the hell is this going to work? You know, I'll just speak again to, you know, the importance of peer relationships and network. I mean, I have an amazing relationship with like my father-in-law, my father-in-law, you know, ran a business, a, a personal services business, insurance, you know, big insurance agency, commercial insurance for a very long time. And he had gone through all kinds of transitions. And so having someone like that to kind of just lean on a little bit was a big deal. My study group then, which is comprised of six six advisors from all across the country. We we had, you know, that particular year, once a year we would get together for a several day retreat somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. And that year I think we were planning on going to visit. I guess the location doesn't matter. It wasn't here. When this all took place, everybody canceled those plans and we had the retreat in Minneapolis to help Joe launch his farm. You know, and so moments moments like that, I just I can't speak enough to. In terms of just getting through difficult times and having those friendships and relationships with people that just care that much to get you through those phases. So, you know, I encourage the heck out of that with with everybody. Anybody getting into this space, my my the last two years, of course, have have made that very complicated for people to build and have those relationships and go meet people at conferences and things like that. But, you know, as soon as it's possible to do that, I'm gonna encourage the heck out of it for people that are working here because it's it's pretty vital those those are important so what do you know now that you wish back you could go back and tell you from seven plus years ago when you were launching the firm about how to, how to build and grow the firm it's a great question i mean i know you know if we go back further 
you know, 17 or 18 years ago, you know, I would just tell myself, you know, continue to be patient, continue to be a sponge. You know, some of the some of the resources and 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 people at your disposal along the way have so many great things to share and are willing to give so much. Over the last seven years, <laughs> I would say, kind of hiring and you know hiring and and managing talent is is a much more difficult thing than than I expected or thought. You know, not everybody comes into this type of world with the same perspective, same lens, uh, same passions. So uh, being able to kind of navigate that component better, I think, would have been extremely helpful that, you know, just the confidence aspect. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if it's true of everybody, but, you know, I, it, it seems to me that most of the successful business owners I talk to, not just in financial planning, but elsewhere, you know, all around kind of have the whole imposter syndrome syndrome going on. I mean, that's very real. And I was just kind of being skittish and scared that it's just not going to work out. And we, you know, we carry that, carry that around with us. You know, the whole thing's going to implode tomorrow. And, you know, on one hand that keeps you kind of hungry and sharp, I think, to a certain degree, but it also doesn't let you kind of have that perspective of, wow, this is really awesome. It's working out. And and there's a really cool thing happening here. And, you know, just really, really enjoy this journey and invite other people in to do it. You know, I have a personality that, you know, when things get difficult uh, and hard, I tend to clamp down. You know, it's, it, it's almost like a defense mechanism, right? I mean, I don't want to let my wife know that I'm scared or nervous or whatever. And, you know, I, I, I also know, <laughs> I also know that when I do that, that's not fair to her, shuts her out. And, you know, she knows, <laughs> she knows something's bothering me and I just clamp down and won't share it and say, no, you know, everything's fine. I, I wish I would share more of that journey, would have shared more of that journey along the way so that she really does, you know, kind of understand where I'm coming from. But, you know, I would say it's mostly things like that than anything else. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors coming into the industry today and, and trying to find their path? One main thing is be patient. You know, you what I found a very interesting and, and very significant component of our clientele now are literally just friends of mine from college and high school, where for the first like 10 years of my career, you know, we may not have talked a whole lot I shouldn't say that about kind of financial aspects of financial things, but naturally, as they got into their you know kind of 30s and started hitting you know an upward trajectory with their career paths, uh, started having families, they saw and observed from a distance that you know over that prior decade, like I was super passionate about what was what I was doing. And some of the writings and things that I have been doing with with the blogs and posting stuff out on various channels, I knew what I was doing, and I cared. And it was different than how you know a lot of this industry delivers things. And so that led to just kind of a sudden windfall of people coming in the door. So you know, with 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 younger people in particular, you're kind of in a hurry. You know, I used to have that same <laughs> that same thing is. Well, look, I got all the, you know, the great coursework done and I know, you know, I know how to do financial plans, the data, the numbers, but it was more kind of the idea of, look, I have all this great knowledge and hey, everybody look at me. I, I want to share it with somebody I want to show you during, you know, during FPA residency, you know, that was kind of one of the, one of the comments that, you know, Gail Coleman reiterated several times during that week. So it stuck with me is, you know, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And it's one of my favorite phrases. And something I think about a lot. And I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I would, I would just say you need to, you need to care. You can't fake caring, at least for long in this industry, or you're going to get, 
you know, called out for by somebody, you're going to, you're going to slip up somewhere. You've got to care. If you don't care, do something else. So as we wrap up, this is a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes is that the word success just means very different things to different people. So as you're building this very successful advisory firm and the business is going so well, how do you define success for yourself at this point? I mean, my, my biggest thing is like my time is one of the most important elements to me. Being able to participate, you know, especially in, you know, especially in my kids' lives to the extent that I do. That's a, that's a very, very critical element of it. And, you know, having a good relationship with my wife and my kids, being able to travel a whole pile of the time, you know, take a decent amount of vacations, create memories that are going to, you know, kind of last forever. You know, people ask sometimes about business metrics. I've never been somebody that says, you know, I want to have a certain AUM or onboard a certain number of clients this year. Those types of goals mean nothing to me. Instead, you know, our goals are really more about remaining focused on what we're already doing, remaining focused on our clients. If we, you know, if we really maintain focus on vision and values, process and systems, the numbers are just going to take care of themselves. So, you know, if we ever start to get super focused on numbers and data and dollars and cents, that's going to be a point where it feels unsuccessful and a lot less fun for me. But I, you know, I, I would say the biggest thing is it really is time. Very cool. And I'm, I'm struck just by the, again, the nature of the journey that when, when the business development stuff comes a little bit later in our career, when just when we've got the clarity of vision, values, like I've done a bunch of different stuff. I know what I want to do. I know what I don't want to do. I know how I want to serve my clients. I know which clients I don't want to serve. You know, once you've got that clarity and the confidence that comes with it, and and just by then we tend to be at an age and stage of life where people we know and interact with us tend to have a little bit more business opportunity than who we know in our maybe in our early 20s, right? a lot of, a lot of business starts flowing. As, as you said, the, the numbers start taking care of themselves at, at that point. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com. <laughs>